0: Listening to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies, about cinema, about films, about zoetrope's,
1: about uh, GIFs. I would say we're about cave paintings, aka the first films, shadow puppets. Um,
0: Oh. Hiding behind a blanket and then lowering the blanket to reveal your face to a baby. All forms of entertainment Mm -hmm. that we cover on this
1: podcast. We are part of this long lineage of storytelling.
0: Yes, it's exciting to be a part of it. It's exciting to discuss it. And it's exciting to sometimes look back on certain years, perhaps even... Mm -hmm. From decades ago, perhaps even from four decades ago, the summer of 1982, a fantastic year for cinema, a year that brought us such films as Conan the Barbarian and... Some other ones that we've done on the last few weeks.
1: We have been covering them all in a mini-series. We've covered many of them from the world, according to Garp, to Mm -hmm. those crazy kids celebrating their time in high school at the fast times at Ridgemont High.
0: And today we're talking about a bunch of other crazy kids, a bunch of crazy kids that are living out there in the snow. What the heck are they doing (laughs) out there? I hope they don't see The Thing. Well, they
1: might, because the movie is called The Thing. The Thing. This is, for us, Cameron, the second time we have covered The Thing on this podcast.
0: That is correct, Alexi, and it won't be the last time that I cover The Thing, because uh, I...
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it is demanded of us from time to time.
0: Yes, and I'm a married man, and sometimes I'm intimate with my uh, loving spouse, and we, Mm -hmm. yeah, sometimes... Like to cover the thing and then, uh, you yes. know. On it the- spices which-
1: things up every now and then to wear a little rubber sleeve every now and then.
0: <laughs> when we make the beast with two backs. And no, I'm not talking <laughs> about that scene where you see a charred creature that's half man, <laughs> half dog in this movie. I'm talking half about. Half man, half dog and all back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about marital intercourse with my wife. Finally I get to talk about it
1: (laughs) Which is another one of the topics we cover on this podcast Is marital (laughs) intercourse With Cameron's wife Yes Um. well you know you're the only one You're the expert on the topic I can but speculate on it
0: Yes and but speculate is something That I also do Within the confines of my marriage, but I I dare not talk about butt speculation on this show.
1: Let's keep some it clean. Things are holy and some things yes. are private, and, and the butt well, when is it very comes holy. To the, butt of the butt, it's both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you're listening to this for the first time, it's a fucking movie podcast, and yeah, we watch mm-hmm. a movie and we talk about it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Sorry to any first time listeners who are like, what the fuck is this show? <laughs>
1: There's some diehard fans of John Carpenter's The Thing and they go, I wonder if anyone's ever done a podcast on this. Well, wow, this one mm-hmm. looks popular. Let's chuck on this one.
0: Ay, yeah, ay. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. My name is Cameron James. I'm sitting across the Zoom from Alexi Toliopolis And yes, as you mentioned, Lex, this is not the first time that we have covered The Thing. We have covered mm-hmm. The Thing before. But we thought we got to do it again. We're talking about the summer of 1982. It would be crazy not to talk about one of the biggest flops of that summer... That has gone on to become probably one of the more beloved films to come out of that entire summer as well. So I think, it's, I think it's pretty special to talk about it.
1: And I think what is so surprising when we look at what a big flop The Thing was on its original release is just how truly influential it has been in the last 40 years of cinema. So
0: true, and we do love to flop a thing on this podcast as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's not just about the thing, it's also about the flop. It's both together comparatively.
0: (laughs) That'll be the last time I make a variation on that joke. I swear to God. That's it.
1: And I will still have a few locked in the chamber, ready to go at a moment's notice. But (laughs) I, I actually take back what I just said. I don't think it's just been a big influence on cinema. I think this is one of the most influential things on all types of (coughs) horror, sci-fi, media, everywhere. Mm. Not even just horror, sci-fi, media, everything. Like, there's so many video games that I feel like are inspired by The Thing. Some directly, there's a video game. Mm. That's how I became originally uh, familiar with The Thing, was through the video game. But you look at, like, all that kind of survival horror genre, I think is so indebted to this iteration of this story.
0: So, did you, did you first come across this story because of the video game?
1: Yeah, I hadn't even heard of the movie. I would have been, like, maybe 13 years old when the video game came out, and that's how I found out this movie existed, and that's how I kind of discovered it to be, I think it was, similar to Blade Runner at that time, a cult classic becoming a genuine classic and i would consider a genuine classic of cinema now Mm
0: -hmm. yeah 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 so what was your first um experience like with the film when you first chucked it on i'd imagine on a dvd at some point Mm -hmm. probably around the age of 14 years old if i've i'm assuming you play the game you Mm -hmm. go wow i gotta check out the source material and then you chuck on that DVD. I
1: watched it before I played the game Whoa. because it was the game was coming out. there's all these things about it. People talk about how much they love the film uh, in these like you know official Xbox magazines and such. Mm. and I remember me and maybe a couple of other 14 year old boys putting that DVD on from my friend's dad's collection and getting truly freaked the frick out by it
0: couple of 14-year-old boys experimenting with the thing. That's interesting, but...
1: Cameron, you made a promise to me moments ago and you verged close to breaking it there for a little entendre hidden away.
0: Look, do a blood test on me. I may or may not be who I say I am. And possibly I'm a goddamn liar. I don't know. I don't know what you want from me. But then did you love the movie right away? Did you think it was did you think it deserved
1: classic status? I do, but I think my love for this film has grown so much over the years. Like you just be- I think Carpenter is someone that you I think for most people they stumble across a Carpenter film. But then I think when you find his entire oeuvre, you get this real appreciation for him as really the genre master. He's the B movie master. Of our times. I thought Jerry Seinfeld was
0: the B-movie master. Oh, Cameron,
1: now that is a rich gag full of joy for me. That caught me by surprise. (laughs) Because, yes, Jerry is closely associated with the term (laughs) B-movie. He's the B-movie master of his domain. Oh, wow, now that is a title for a B-movie sequel <laughs> About to be jacking off
0: <laughs> No, you're absolutely right Of course, of course. I mean, he's he works very closely associated with the horror genre With science fiction as well um, With revenge movies And it, it took me a long time to come around to John Carpenter I was like, um you know, I don't know, I guess I kind of... I, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I found mm. the the B movie aesthetic quite uh, cheesy. Mm. And then it wasn't until, I don't know, the last few years, I guess there's been a bit of a 80s resurgence with the types of horror movies that are being made. And then that yes. makes you go back and check out some of the originals. And then uh, all of a sudden, I just kind of couldn't get enough of them. I think they look amazing. I love, I love all mm. of the look of all of his films. Like, even though they were probably quite low budget, they look better than most movies that get made today.
1: Hmm. And I think most of them, because they've got such a clear aesthetic, they're so easy to revisit today. Mm. And I think that's why they have taken time to become classics. Because I think they are a rare example of movies that contemporary audiences can still... When I'm saying contemporary audiences, I'm not just talking about like people that listen to movie podcasts and mm-hmm. people that would consider themselves cinephiles. I'm talking about mainstream audiences. I feel like Carpenter, because he was such a groundbreaker and someone who shaped what modern horror, modern science fiction, modern genre and speculative fiction films look like... He's informed so much of how that's evolved with his style. So I feel like he is someone that is very easy to revisit and very easy to pass on to people that may be less cinematically inclined to really grasp history and to really enjoy these movies as they are given to them rather than just like having to look at them as, oh, it's something from a time, a certain Mm. time and a certain place. I think they really speak... And especially this one, this is a timeless movie to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's not the usual like markers of um, a, like a generation or a time period. I guess the closest you get to NAF is that he's playing computer chess at the beginning of the movie on an Apple II or something like mm-hmm. that. And you can, that's maybe the only time where you can go, oh, that's a clearly dated bit of technology. But the rest of this is so like, I don't know, uniform and almost militaristic That it could be kind of any time
1: mm. Yeah, absolutely It's that kind of uniformality of everything
0: I reckon we should just dive in, dude Let's dive in and talk about the thing
1: It's origin Alien Location Antarctica Age Unknown Intent Survival Destination, man. John
0: Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter. Alexi, from what I understand, you found some sort of synopsis or logline out there in the deep, dark recesses of the internet. You're going to read it out to me, and uh, I mean, I'm reading this from the sheet of paper right now. It says, I have to love it or hate it. Either way, i got to rate it.
1: Well, Cameron, this log line that I pray you do love comes from imdb.com user mm-hmm. known only as Goth. So imagining someone clad in leather and eyeliner wrote this synopsis for one of the spookiest movies ever made on the planet Earth about beings that transmit themselves from worlds. This is what Goth has to say. An American scientific expedition to the frozen waste of the Antarctic is interrupted by a group of seemingly mad Norwegians pursuing... And shooting a dog. The helicopter pursuing the dog explodes, eventually leaving no explanation for the chase. During the night, the dog mutates and attacks other dogs in the cage, and members of the team investigate the team Mm. soon realizes that an alien life form with the ability to take over other bodies is on the loose and they don't know who may already have been taken over cameron i'm gonna guess you absolutely adored this tagline this freaking logline was one of the greats
0: (laughs) uh you know what i'm gonna have to call an audible here on goth and i'm gonna have to say that's an immediate disqualification because Mm -hmm. I don't think that's either a logline or a synopsis. That's a Mm -hmm. treatment. I think you've just given us a treatment for the first act of the film, Mm -hmm. and if I were to be uh, an executive or a financier in the room and I heard that, I'd say, you've got the first 30 minutes, but what happens in Act 2 and Act 3? Come back to me with a more fleshed-out treatment and then maybe we'll consider moving Forward with this
1: development. Cameron, I would say I think you're being rather generous. I would say it's one of the shitter things I've ever read out loud on this podcast. It had no description. It just said this, 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 that, then this. Can you blame a goth? goth?
0: Goths are sad folks. They're not sitting around thinking of, like, new fancy ways to describe things. Mm -hmm. They're glum. They're... That guy was probably typing it from a freaking graveyard, sitting with his back (laughs) up against a tomb, pondering life, and being like, fuck, i got to log in this fucking synopsis for the thing I promised I'd do to IMDb.
1: Well, I thought this goth would have a poetic heart because they see the sadness of the world, the true melancholy, and how... Inevitable, the end is for us all, whether it be death by thing or death by climate change, which actually could be an interpretation of the thing. But I think it sucked ass. And this goth should listen to his heart and freaking kill himself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll stop just
0: short of saying they should kill themselves, but I will say they should be deeply... Deeply ashamed of what they've contributed <laughs> to the online discourse surrounding this film. And uh, yeah, I hope, I just hope that they they stay sad forever. I don't hope mm-hmm. they kill themselves, but I hope, <laughs> I hope I they. I damn
1: them to internal melancholy. Well
0: clinical depression. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cameron, this is a film that we both probably revisit every couple of years. And. Mm. I think one thing about this film that surprises me each time is because it is quite a sparse film, you kind of remember moments, but you don't, for me, I don't at least remember like the linear nature of this Mm. film. Like what happens, what happens where. And the thing that delighted me about the thing this time was that opening where we see Earth from the perspective of space. We see that unidentifiable flying object zooming its way to our planet that we call home. And then we have that title Mm -hmm. card that is almost like light ripping through the celluloid this film is printed on and exposing us to like these cosmic wonders that are going to be coming to our world. And then when we re-meet... That unidentified flying object, a UFO that I'm going to say as shorthand from now onwards, and it has been on this planet for probably 100,000 years, that is something I had absolutely no memory of going back into this. And it kind Mm. of speaks to something that you and I have talked about quite recently, that idea of chariots of the gods, those ancient aliens.
0: Hey, hey, hey. I was wondering when we were finally going to be able to dive back into our ancient alien theory And I just want to quickly say hello to all our new listeners on our new podcast Alexi and Cam's Ancient Alien Theory Mm -hmm. It's a show where we finally dive deep into all these great discussions about the cosmos And the thing is... A great example of this, it excites me every time I reach that point in the movie When I think, oh my god, that ship's been under the ice for 100,000 years How exciting, it's also a detail I always forget There's also, you're so true, Like there, there's a lot of moments in this movie that stand out A lot of set pieces, but beat for beat, I never really remember what is happening in this story And mm. in many cases, that would be a like a... That would be an insult, that would be a bad thing mm. But for some reason I, I love it in this movie I think it's because this movie for me Is more about the tone of it Than about the story of it I don't even really know What this movie is about You hinted that maybe there's a climate change Like, you know, metaphor at play With this flick I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't But for me it's just like Hey, this is a tonal Fucking bit of tension that lasts for two hours long, and I guess that's why I like it.
1: It is that real "Who Done It." I think you can see the inspiration and influence of not just like the Howard Hawks original, the thing from another world, or the short story this is based on, or even just like the cosmic horror of H. P. Lovecraft, Hewlett Packard, Lovecraft all over this movie that inspires John Carpenter. But I think it is in equal measure, you know, stuff like "And Then There Were None" by Agatha Christie. And if you don't know the original title of that book, I'll allow everybody listening to this podcast to look it up. And I dare not say it on the podcast. It's extremely. Rude, I know what it is, but I know what it it's is. A, it's, it's bad not as good. hell, it's- dude. It's, it's really bad.
0: It's really rude, Agatha Christie. And we do condemn really her. Really rude lady. We, can, we think, yeah, we're we canceling Agatha hell. Christie on this show. This show, we're doing it. We're canceling Agatha Christie for mm-hmm. the original title of that
1: book. And it is uh, really spicy. Too spicy to even hint that on this podcast.
0: But then, and then there were none is a better title. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love I love the whodunit element of it all. I love the mystery element of it all. There are even times where I wish this film stuck to the original plan of having no clear protagonist. Like, M- mm. McCready was just going to be one of the 12, um, you know, dudes at the outpost who kind of survives through the end, but he wasn't ever designed to be the hero. And there's a part of me that sort of wishes they stayed true to that and then we just got to w- kind of know these 12 guys but not really know them that well and you just sort of – Literally spend the whole movie not knowing who to trust, you know? Because, like, as soon as Kurt Russell's face appears on screen, you're like, oh, yeah, there's the hero.
1: You know he's a freaking movie star. He's got beautiful hair and he's got nice eyes behind that bushy beard.
0: Yeah, it's like, it's not going to be Wilfred Brimley, you know what I mean? Like... I love Wilfred Brimley, but he's not—he's yeah. not the hero of this thing.
1: No, not at all. And I think that is one of the best things about this film is that there is this wonderful cast of fantastic, like working players, these character actors, and each of them uh, feels so imbued with just like real personality and the personalities of people that have spent so much time alone with each other that there is this quietness about them. Like, there's nothing about each other trying to impress each other or any of the dynamics of, like, status. These are people that are Basically, apart from like an intu- institutionalized hierarchy in their workplace, they are just so familiar and stuck to each other that there's no pleasantries at all. There's not mm. really much goofing or joking around. It's just their day-to-day monotonous life being broken up by a pod person visitor from another world.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to talk about this movie because for a number of reasons, but... Um, Largely because we've spoken about it before as well So I don't even really know what to say beyond Yeah, I just really like this movie
1: Well, I think that what I would most want to talk about is the creature itself. Because I find this such a confronting image, this creature, that is unknowable. And I read this great essay, and I'm going to read you a passage from it. It's from writer Violet Luca, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And this is from the re-release of the film from 2017. And this is how they describe the beast. "...by being fundamentally unknowable, the alien is our instinctual fear of the strange, made flesh, a vaguely sentient abyss ready to consume everything. In the years following its release, many critics and fans have argued the thing represents the then-nascent AIDS crisis. A blood testing proves the only way to know if someone within the film's all-male environment is infected." And it goes on to also compare it to possibly being climate change because it, it, or representative of climate change to modern audiences, because it is something that is unearthed through digging through and destroying the environment in Antarctica as well. Mm. I think it's just what this thing represents is so unknowable. We see it as a mutation of our own flesh, which makes it feel so. To me, the same way they feel about The Exorcist, where it's like a primal fear that's being tapped into. The primal fear of The Exorcist is our fears of the unknown, that our fears of the good and evil of this world being confronting each other at all times. It's that religious fear. Whereas this is... An example of body horror, which is a fear of the flesh and a fear of the flesh being transformed into something unrecognizable and being confronted by something that we've not seen before. I think this does it much better than most other examples of alien horror films, you know, Mm. alien being an example of one where it does something similar to this, where we are confronted with something that we cannot grasp. We cannot understand the physiology of this character and how it works. It's something so foreign to us. And I think that it speaks to that kind of reality. Like, there's been examples of this throughout hi- human history as well, where one culture is oppressive and it comes to another culture where they've not seen them before, where they've never seen mm. it. This is something that's part of Australian history as well, where colonizers came and- uh, we hear oral history of how uh, Indigenous ancestors could not understand what they were seeing. They couldn't understand it, and I think this is something that captures that exact fear in a way that is in this like B movie tradition of splatter. Yeah, it's it's so. I, I'm not
0: too across Lovecraft. I know, I know roughly the the ideas behind the Lovecraftian horror. You know, like the cosmic. Horror—the idea that there's evil that has been here forever and it manifests in different mm. forms. But the one thing that I've always enjoyed about this movie, I guess, is the fact that it's the creature. You can't even draw it. Like it, you couldn't mm. dress up as it for Halloween unless you just dressed up as like you know one specific moment, like freeze framed moment of gore from this movie because yeah, it, it changes from cut to cut you know the the effects are so practical and so crazy that there is there's a lot of amazing images in this movie but there's none that you could definitely point to and go that's the iconic image of the thing there's just so much and it's that's what's so fucking scary and gross but also so fucking cool about it like i I think i said this last time we discussed it so i apologize i'll say it again but I watch this movie so often and every time I'm like, holy fuck, that's an image I never noticed last time and it's an image mm. that I never would have conceived in my own brain. It's just like I'm so in awe of these of these dudes and who made this shit. I can't even imagine having the imagination. I can't even imagine having the imagination, Alexi.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's what Stan Winston is. He is like the true like image crafter of horror around this time, of stuff mm. that we can't understand. And the one that captures me by surprise every time I come back, because it's not as iconic as the dog turning into the thing and the tendrils of it spurting mm. out, or that face opening up to be like a flower. It's not the defibrillator going through mm. someone's body and then being munched up by their rib cage. Uh, or even the head popping off somebody's body upside down, mm. turning into a spider running across the grounds. It is this one moment towards the very end of the film where Wilford Brimley pushes his hands oh, yeah. through Jerry's—is it through Gary or Jerry? Gary.
0: I never remember any of the yeah. characters' names. That's my confession no to way. you. I remember. All I know is Wilfred Brimley in windows. McCready. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> but when he pushes his hands through Gary's. Face yeah, In foul. a way where you cannot see the <laughs> seams of the makeup, the prosthetic at all It just looks real it's and foul. it doesn't look violent Like it looks like something that your brain can't even comprehend mm. Like a merging of two things almost in a way that looks so real Like you said, it's foul It's the one that freaks me out the most And
0: that's, that's the creature absorbing... The other person, that's something that I think Carpenter said was the most difficult thing to explain about this creature is that it absorbs the people. It doesn't eat them or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It just makes them part of it, you know. For me, I think the image that, sticks, that stuck with me this time is in the sequence with the whole, like, blood test where a few of the dudes mm-hmm. are tied up to a lounge and then one of the guys... Starts transforming into the creature And His head opens up like a Venus Mm flytrap And latches onto Windows's head And then lifts him up off his feet So it's like two Like It's like a man standing on top of another man's head It's like this really bizarre Foul image And then his, his hands start merging with the other guy's Body as well So it's like this melding of flesh And Chewing and stuff all happening at once But with this crazy image of like One man completely upside down on top of the other guy I mean like I I watched it And I I was just like man I would kill to be a fucking makeup dude Or to be an effects dude I reckon that would be If I was just starting out now In like entertainment That would Mm. be where I would want to be heading It's so... Cool. Like, imagine just yeah. getting to think that shit up and getting to make that stuff. Imagine being on set and being like, all right, we need to make this gooey. Let's get some more fucking KY jelly and, like, yeah. creamed corn and shit and just pour it all over this dude. It looks, it looks so
1: fun. It's the stuff that really makes you feel alive when you're working on a film like that. Like, when I worked on Red Christmas, our friend Craig Anderson's horror film, mm. there was one day on set where I was assistant director and it was one of the most fun times of my life because it was Dave Collins, the umbilical brother, getting yep. his head blended up in a blender. That's so a they had bit. to figure out how to make the blender whiz and whir mm. without the glass jug on top and then also destroy his he- prosthetic head in it with blood spurting out of his face. And so, there was a moment where the entire kitchen in this Airbnb that we were filming in had blood, red corn syrup, red dyed corn syrup, squirting out of the prosthetic eyes of beloved comedian Dave Collins, Mm -hmm. and then it was so much fun to just for 45 minutes you know, most people stripping out of like the clothes that they didn't want to get ruined to clean up the blood in this kitchen. And I think that is like the true imagination and the fun that we all kind of seek when we make stuff. And like when we want to make these big ideas, it's all about the craft of it all. And it's such like an artistic craft, filmmaking and the collaboration of all these departments coming together. I think this is such a great example. And I think that's why we are so drawn to These types of genre movies and why this year of 1982 lives on in this kind of notoriety or this infamy or this celebration, because it is the year and this summer is the summer where genre films are fully embraced to the level that they are now, where genre is really king Mm. and is what dominates conversation in the box office. In the late 70s, we see those glimmers with Jaws, with Star Wars, making bigger money than movies have ever made before. And this summer is that first summer where it's all Genre with a few examples of exceptions like Garp or um, An Officer and a Gentleman and those kind of movies. But it is the genres, and beyond that, it's the sequels and stuff like that that are really building up what this summer looks like and then what cinema looks like for the next 40 freaking years.
0: Yeah, and, like, you know, that has its good and its bad sides. I mean, you know, it's I think genre movies, I... I I'd gravitate both towards and away from them depending mm. on what I'm going through in my own life. Sometimes I just want to watch, you know, like your, your movies like Tangerine or Red Rocket, like a little dialogue yeah. driven sort of indie film. Character or, piece. Yeah, or a link later film or something. But then, but then. Every now and then I go I get fully back on a wave of genre and I think I've never been able to figure out exactly what it is that draws me back in but I think it's it sparks something in the creative side of my brain that mm. reminds me of being a child and playing with my friends or something like that. If I'm watching a horror movie like The Thing, I'm you know it takes me back to being like playing in the bush behind my house when I was a child with all the kids in my suburb where we would just play army and we'd be like pretending that we were trying to kill monsters or, or hunt ghosts or, you know, like whatever, just shit that wasn't really there. There's something that just purely childlike about these movies. And also something really like reminds me of first kind of studying film production and TV production at uni where, I was learning about how practical effects worked and I was learning about how special effects and editing worked. So, when I watch movies like this, I spend a lot of time just being like, how the fuck did they do that? Mm. And, and then, like, Googling afterwards, like, how the fuck did they do that? I remember when, when I first saw the movie Hostel, I was so mm. grossed out by that fucking movie. There's so many disgusting practical effects in that movie. And then I watched the behind the scenes of it on the DVD and it just made me like truly love that kind of gore shit for mm. a little while there where I was like, oh man, it's all just like gadgets and and latex and like there's people laying out of shot pumping blood and oozing stuff. It's just true so creative to imagine how to make all these things. Um I wish I worked on these fucking
1: movies. We got to make something where someone's freaking head gets chopped in half in a way that no one's ever seen before. That's what we need to do. I mean,
0: how sick would it be? I remember seeing Mm. Red Christmas. There's some really creative gore in Red Christmas. Um, Mm. And there is a scene where someone gets completely cut in half down the middle, I'm pretty sure. There
1: is indeed.
0: And pulled in two different directions. And I remember seeing that and being like, well, fuck me. That's like- That's an image that'll stay with me. That's so inventive and so cool.
1: I think you kind of danced around something that I consider quite important when it comes to talking about film and the way that we interact with film. And it is based in genre. And this is why I think genre study is so important for filmmakers and film enthusiasts because... Genre is the language of film. Genre is the way that film communicates to its audience most directly, beyond the techniques of cinema. It is the language of film, the language of art, the language of the way that audiences accept things. Because whether you like it or not, audiences come into films, for the most part, with expectations and predetermined thoughts in their heads of what they expect of movies and what they expect to be delivered and what they expect the experience to be. And genre is the language that you need to understand because it is those either plots, those expectations, those tropes and trivialities of film that audiences have baggage of coming in. And I think it's the thing that I think it's the way that audiences accept films and the way that they kind of interpret them is all in the mess of genre. And I think it's Mm. something that's so important to understand. And I think it's why people like us go to genre for comfort or go to genre for an experience of either something that we know we are going to receive in a certain way or for our expectations to be upended for a film to be... um, What's the word? Not subjective, but to be uh to flip on to flip genre on its head, what am I trying to say?
0: Inverted, um chomped um, on the head and then turned upside down like a thing chewing on a guy.
1: Uh subverted is what I meant. Subverted. <laughs> like subverted, genre to be subversive, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, to yeah, be yeah. to subvert yeah. your expectations. And I think that's like that's it. It's a language genre is a language that we all understand, whether we're conscious of it or not. And I think that's why movies like John Carpenter's films really speak to that because they are these totem poles throughout the history of genre in each place that that shape our understanding of these genres. So let me ask you then, and this is uh maybe this is more broadly. Directed
0: at the idea of a horror genre film rather than like science fiction or whatever. But um, what do you think it is about us that craves to see an inventive death
1: on screen? Wow, that's such a good question. I think partly we want to see things that we've never seen before. That is Hmm. something, that's a thrill, and that's a thrill that really you only get in cinema because, you know, TV is catching up in that department now, but Hmm. for the most part, that thrill is what we go to the movies for, and there's a kind of communal aspect to something like that where you are surprised by something, you see something you've never seen before. We think about that as like a community where you watch it together, and that is The moment you share, that's a moment where you go, oh, my God, did you just fucking see how that person was destroyed? That's Mm. the communal aspect of it where we find that, in this case, that bloodlust as an audience. And why we go to these horror movies and a lot of times, like, you know, slasher movies in particular, and I would consider this not out of the realm of slashers. It's in that same ballpark because of the, the progression of the plot You go for that bloodlust. You go to share that experience with people, and that's part of the community of film. That's why we are drawn to them.
0: So do you think that with a movie like this, do you think this is a slasher or a survival movie? Do you think that we're rooting for these guys to win or we're just kind of watching and waiting for them all to get devoured?
1: I think that this is probably closer to survival because the who done it aspect of this film the investigation of who is the thing the werewolf aspect of it all mm-hmm. that is a human game that's a human game that they're playing and we as an audience understand it as a human game from what we've seen in like adaptations of agatha christie novels and stuff that's how we interpret it as a detective procedural to an extent but the thing from another world is not playing a human game. It is disguising itself within this human game. So, to me, the end is so dark and so inevitable of what is going to happen in this. And while Mm. the film itself ends ambiguously, the only ambiguity is which one of these two men that are alive at the end of the film is the thing. It's not, oh, how's McCready going to get home to America? They're hmm. going to fucking die from the thing or the cold or from their abandonment out there in Antarctica in hmm. the wastes of, uh, of no populace, of nobody. They're the most alone people on the planet and that is the inevitability of it all and that is a game that the thing plays that is not a human game whatsoever so i think it is about the it is about them trying to survive by outwitting and outsmarting something that does not have wit and that does not have intelligence it is virulent
0: yeah i think you're right because uh, you know the, the movie opens with macready who's you know the default hero of this movie playing a chess computer program on his Apple II Mm -hmm. with its shitty little effects and its dumb voice. and
1: Yeah, that stupid-ass voice.
0: His stupid fucking Apple voice. And uh, he loses to it, and then he kind of defies it by ruining its hard drive. Like, he kind of says, Mm. fuck you, you're cheating, biatch. And then he pours whiskey in its hard drive and blows up his computer. So I feel like that is supposed to be the, like, the microcosm of the film. Like That's a mm. tiny scene that says, hey, this is what this movie is about. It's about trying your hardest to intelligently win. And then when you can't, you do something destructive so that no one wins. And that's mm. sort of how the movie ends. Like, it just literally ends with them blowing up the space station and then these two dudes, one of whom may or may not be a creature, just waiting in the cold to die rather than any of them winning. It's kind of like mm. a, you know, it's pouring whiskey on the hard drive at the end of the movie.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It is, I mean, it is really a spectacular film and it's something that I take so much joy in revisiting Because it still surprises. Because even when I go back to it, like I said, I forget about the ancient aliens aspect of it all. Mm. And I think there are so many mysteries in it. And these are some mysteries that the prequel that we discussed as well a couple Mm. of years ago on this podcast tries to, I guess, demystify a little bit or at least kind of build upon. And what is the thing? Because I don't think the thing is an alien that pilots this ship. Because that seems like an intelligent life. And I don't think it's quite a pod person either. Like, when you look at the other pod people movies that are... I mean, that's a subgenre that I love. Not just because the name is so funny to say, pod people. And we but, are know, pod
0: people. I consider us to be pod, pod people.
1: Absolutely. I think we are officially pod people. And, you know, pod people, that is, like, such a rich history of... Uh, the B-movie genre that evolves and is often speaking of what is going on in the uncertain times that these films are being made. You look at every version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and how that story evolves in time with each reboot and remake and what they are talking about. Like The pod people are always people coming in trying to Take over our lives and our lifestyles. Mm-hmm. I don't see this as a pod person movie like that. This feels more like a virus movie. Like, this mm. is you get infected by the thing and it's freaking over, bucko. It's not even replacing you, it's destroying everything that ever existed in your human form. And I think, like, what are the mysteries of the thing? Was this a virus that they had and they were trying to escape from in their home world? Was this something that they had in a test tube that broke mm. and has been lurking in that ship for a hundred years, waiting to escape? And I mean, that's the good thing about that prequel. I don't remember it at all, so I don't remember if they discuss, like, if they get into what yeah, it is. I can't too even much. remember. I don't think so. I remember they get onto the craft. I think they get onto the craft. I
0: think there's a bit where they get on the craft, but also, like, I don't remember it, and I also don't think I'll ever rewatch it again. So, as far as I'm aware, that movie doesn't exist.
1: Mm. Yeah. All I remember, Joel Edgerton, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, two of my favourite actors, and that's it.
0: Fantastic. And they're
1: good in the freaking movie. They're great at it. They're great. Uh, It's... I think it's those mysteries that are so enticing about this because they're so far in the background that they're completely irrelevant to the, to the plot of this film and to the mm. characters that are, like, going through quite an otherwise mundane exercise around something so horrifying. So true.
0: Now, let me ask you this. If you were forced at gunpoint... To give out some awards for this movie, I'm talking specifically awards for character actors. Mm-hmm. Who would you give them to? Because there is there's a million character actors in this fucking movie. Yeah, there's almost two.
1: There's al- there's one star. There's one movie star, and then Keith David yeah. is close to movie star. I might say he's a genre star for sure. Yeah, but yeah, to yeah. me, dude, it is impossible to go past the. Other guy we've named so much in this, Wilford Brimley. It is <laughs> such an iconic turn by him. I love this character and he's such... It's, to me, perfect utilisation of a character actor where he is so kindly, grandfatherly looking. He's not even freaking old in this movie, but he's like very grandfatherly presence mm. and very inauspicious presence and... That you don't notice when he's not around. And I think that is perfect utilization of a character actor. And like the unique ability of these character actors. That we kind of see in the periphery around these movies. And man it's my favorite freaking thing that I think is so funny. When he's like kind of banished himself. And he's acting like a child that's been taken away from like the party and is just hiding in their room and he's got that noose dangling behind him like an empty threat that I think is so funny to me that all I can imagine is just like a little boy being sent to their room they've tied up their shirts to scare everyone (laughs) off going like, yes, I'm ready to come back inside now (laughs) I think it's so funny
0: I'd like to give a shout out to Thomas Waits as well, uh, who plays Windows in this movie, mm. the radio operator. Um, I think he he's really great. And there's something just very compelling about the guy's look. I just think he has a really cool, wiry look that I'm kind of drawn to. And he has some sick sunglasses in a couple of scenes that I would definitely love to look up and buy. Um, oh, man. So- Couple of shout-outs there for a couple of character actors.
1: I think that Windows is such a good call. He reminds me so much of Radar from MASH because he seems like a quieter and, like, sadder character that's trapped out there who's younger than everyone else. So he's missing out on some prime years of his life. And Mm. he's also a character actor. We've seen him in The Warriors Mm. just before this comes out, one of my favorite movies of all time, and Justice for All, the Al legal drama. Great character actor of this era and a worthy performance to bestow an Oscar to. Cameron, if we were to give something exciting to something unique about the thing, there are a few things that I really do, and this is maybe another acting award that I'd love to give away. The performance by that fucking dog,
0: Mm, I think it's mm.
1: unbelievable. Yeah, at the beginning of the movie- Beginning of the movie and also how slowly it kind of marches into that cage before it tra- transforms. I think that's one of my favorite moments on this revisit is the dog transforming and the reaction of all the other dog actors mm. to how freaked out they appear by this thing that's so unknowable that they can't even stand to be around it.
0: Love it. Hey, I'd also like to give a hypothetical Oscar out at the moment if I'm allowed to. And this is to a uh, an actor that is not in the movie, but an actor who was in talks to play McCready in this <gasps> film, and that okay. is the Australian actor Jack Thompson.
1: Oh, <gasps> Wow. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, it is a Jack Thompson role, and I've never thought about Jack Thompson and Kurt Russell in the same mindset before yeah but yeah they, that's interesting right uh, there's a link between them right like that. that would
0: have been pretty cool i think
1: wow and let me do a little bit of jack thompson history jack thompson of course stars as Clegg lars owen lars's father in attack of the clones played by star of the thing prequel <laughs> joel edgerton <laughs>
0: Jack Thompson and Tom Atkins Were the two actors that were um, Considered to be McCready before Kurt Russell signed on Tom Atkins of course we know from Lots of other John Carpenter movies He's Mm. the lead in The Fog Which is one of my favourite Carpenter joints Love that flickeroo And he's in I think he's in Halloween 3 Season of The Witch
1: Mm. Is he Moustache Man the lead of Halloween 3 Yeah
0: Moustache Man
1: yeah, um, I've grown to really love him. I remember us being quite rude about him not being a movie star, which is yeah. probably why he wasn't cast as the lead of this movie. He's not a movie but, star.
0: But I really love yeah. him in The Fog. He's really he's really cool in The Fog. He's in Escape from New York as well, a bunch of other shit. He's, yeah. He's a good actor. He's, he's not a Kurt Russell. Hell, he's not even a Jack Thompson.
1: Yeah, I'm really obsessed about this Jack Thompson alternate reality casting because- it makes sense. There's a hardness about Jack Thompson. Like, if you watch um, Sunday Too Far Away, the sheep shearing unionist movie that he's a star of, like a true Australian classic, he is like the embodiment of masculinity in our country. And mm. But there is that gentleness to him, like there is to Kurt Russell, that, oh man, man, we got to do a remake of the thing with Jack Thompson currently. <laughs> <laughs> with 82-year-old Jack Thompson. <laughs> I think that's it. Well, let's think about it. Like how, you know, we've we've seen a prequel, we've seen a mm-hmm. video game sequel. Mm-hmm. Um there has been many films inspired by this directly or indirectly. Uh Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful 8 is to me the greatest derivative work of the thing because it takes the kind of plot, characters and action and takes it to the Wild West. And he gets the same composer, Ennio Morricone, who made the score to this film. He only made a few pieces of music that were used. But he kind of decided to ape Carpenter's style because he felt mm. like that's what he wanted. And then Carpenter stripped it back, used some of it. But then basically the score is mostly sound effects rather than actual scored music. Mm. And Morricone's score for The Hateful Eight is a lot of offcuts from this movie. Like he's more orchestrated Great versions score. that they Great didn't score. use. It's so cool.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, love, I love the Morricone score. Well, you know what? like obviously uh hay Aid is you know it's inspired by but it's not an alien movie it's just a movie about a bunch of fucking cowboys one of one of whom has poisoned a coffee pot for the most part but what if we went prey style with this and we literally did the thing in other points in time and other parts of the planet you know like the thing in the medieval the thing in medieval times up against fucking knights and shit like that
1: that would be cool what I was thinking was, there's like this explorer aspect, and how cool would this be if you made a Shackleton biography about Ernest Shackleton, the explorer of Antarctica, and then it turned into the thing? Yeah, that's sick. <laughs> you do an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunt on Shackleton and the thing.
0: I love the idea of that, or if even if not, if not. Antarctica, just you know, Alaska, just like some mm. people exploring Alaska, coming across like communities out there, Inuit communities in the snow, yeah. and then there's a fucking thing running around. Come on, that's awesome.
1: Emil Hirsch into the wild was into the thing, and he gets mm. ripped up at the end of that old school bus. Oh my god, thing to the wild, I would watch that. Wow. Show. I think there's something about like that as- exploration into the unknown that suits this so much. That is so interesting. Like even like a manifest destiny or something with the thing. There's something there about like exploring the cosmic wonders that are here on Earth.
0: Love it. This is great. I love this thinking. Someone green it. Someone tell Dan Trachtenberg or whatever. We got to get this yeah. made. Maybe Thing vs Prey.
1: Boy. Oh, that would be awesome. Alien versus Predator versus Thing. That would be something very cool. (laughs) If Thing comes in at the end is like, you haven't seen anything yet, I'm actually going to transform each one of you into myself as well. (laughs) And the Thing is played by Jack Thompson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did it. We talked about a movie. Can you believe it?
1: Oh, yes, it's not like we've never done it before, but each time expresses a new challenge for us on how we just will talk about this movie or how little we will talk about it while jacking off each other with some <laughs> crazy gags. Uh, we are nearing the end of this mini series, The Summer of 82. We've got one film left that we have not discussed, but we held out last because it is a film that is very meaningful to this podcast and very meaningful to you and I as creators. On the final episode of Total Reboot, summer of 82, we're going to be talking about Rocky 3, a big-ass sequel that tears up the box office this summer.
0: One of my favorite movies that stars both Hulk Hogan and
1: Burt Young. And, of course, they're known for their buddy act of many films that they did together, the remakes of the Road 2 films of Bod Hope and Bing Crosby. Burton Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, after that... It will be basically the 200th episode of Total Reboot. So we're going to be celebrating 200 episodes of Total Reboot after this miniseries closes. And then talk to you guys a little bit about the future of what this podcast feed will look like. Where we will be changing things up a little bit. It's going to be popular culture focus. It's going to be film fan stuff. But we're going to be kind of a little bit more in the vein of our Finding series which is our explorations into things that we find curiosity in and inspired discoveries, what we kind of want to be inspiring within our audience. And I would also say it's a sneaky way for us to be on the hunt for many different stories that could populate the worlds of our mystery investigations.
0: Absolutely. Can't wait. Looking forward to that very much.
1: Alexi, you do sound you have anything? You sarcastic, like you're not anticipating it, but I know mm. for a fact you are.
0: I am very... I'm sorry if I sound sarcastic. I do not mean to sound sarcastic. I am a tired man at the moment, so perhaps I just sound tired and maybe you're reading into that. Mm, Someone has
1: run out of steam, it would seem.
0: (laughs) Someone had to write five sketches today for a TV show. (laughs) And I ran out of steam on about sketch three. And...
1: (laughs) But I still had to write two more. Um, Yeah, I heard that sketch four you pitched was, what if Thing vs. Prey? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thing, Prey, Love?
1: That's an idea. Okay, that's a good idea. Okay, that's a good
0: idea. (laughs) No, I'm very much looking forward to that. I can't wait. Now, Alexi, do you have anything you would like to plug?
1: Yeah, I was recently on Question Everything, the panel show starring Will Anderson and Jan Fran as a panelist. Um, The episode is up on iView. I'll link it in the show notes. So if you're in Australia, you can click through and watch that. If you're not in Australia, get a freaking VPN to find out what I freaking look like. But if you don't want to watch that panel show, please watch Finding Jesus to find out what Cameron and I look like, okay? Mm. It is our face and body reveal on that show.
0: Yeah I love getting any kind of comment on how we look So thank you for Mm -hmm. the people who decide to just Put their thoughts and feelings out there on how we look We really appreciate it I I am being sarcastic now This is a reveal
1: (laughs) This is a reveal I got a great one from Question Everything They said, um, should I read it? I mean, is it mean? It's really mean Then don't read it Let me find it (laughs) Uh I loved it. Well, maybe I did delete it. Um, oh, no, here it is. Tonight's question, everything is so awful, particularly the fat man on the panel. It should not be on the air again.
0: Jesus Christ. People are fucked in the head, aren't they? It's <laughs> oh, just no, crazy You seem like
1: a fan. They're ready to interact with me.
0: <laughs> um, I would like to plug, uh, I'm coming to Tasmania to do... My show, Electric Dreams, on November 17 and November 18. Uh, November 17 in Hobart, November 18 in Launceston. Uh, I'll put tickets in the show notes for this as well. If you're in Tassie, I'd love you to come along and see it. I'm very proud of this show. and uh, It's it's a show that's done quite well for me, and it's going to be one of the last times that I do it live before I film it. So I'd love you guys to come along and see it. Uh, I'd also like to plug a thing called Finding Yeezus, which is mm-hmm. on YouTube on the Grasshouse channel, and it stars my good friend Alexi Toliopoulos and myself as versions of ourselves.
1: Yeah, we are slightly <laughs> not... you are versions of ourselves, basically. Close to the real <laughs> thing. But with a little extra spice and sugar to make things a little sweeter. Um... I would also say Cameron's show, we've got a, quite a few listeners in Tassie, um, really do go see it. It is freaking spectacular. It's like the one of the best stand-up shows I've ever seen in my life. It's so fun. Um, you'll be freaking, you know, you'll be turned into a goth if you don't see it. And if you do yeah. see it, you might become a goth anyway.
0: Yeah, it's a, there's a little gothy element to it, or at least emo. Hey, also, I'm going to be in Tassie for 10 days, hanging out and mm. doing a little holiday. So send me recommendations for things to do while yeah. I'm there. I love nature. I love getting out there and climbing shit and doing hikes. So send me recommendations for shit like that to do. I'd love to I'd love to include them in my itinerary.
1: Yeah, and Cameron is a foodie. So I'm send also those a to him too. I'm a yeah. foodie and I'm a nudie. So
0: send me so recommendations send to him. Too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Send him the hot spots to get your hot spots out. Yeah, 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 And yes, one more thing. We will be revealing the thing on this podcast in three, two, oh my god. Zip. Ah <laughs> oh, you zipped it up! You zipped me up!
0: <laughs> oh no, <laughs> ay, 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 ay. Something about Mary style.
1: Oh no, the Franken beans have inverted! <laughs>